1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: This is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Rebecca Binz, who's the author of G. Vacher, Beyond Punk, Feminism and the Avant-Garde. Becky, thanks for being here with me today. No worries. Thanks for inviting me. Could you start by talking a bit about um, how this book came to be and, and why you wanted to put together this book on g voucher
2: sure i mean um so basically i would sort of known about g's work for a long time um since i was um a teenager and i came across her work um that she did as part of the anarcho-punk band and collected crass and um, she had very striking sort of imagery and um i was sort of really familiar with her work from then And um, sometime later, when I did an MA in art history, um, uh, there was sort of a lot of historicization going on of um, punk graphics, protest art, and um, from the sort of 1980s, 1970s and 80s. This was in around 2010. And there wasn't really any mention of G. Vulture's work, despite there being quite a lot of critical attention paid to um, various sort of contemporaries of hers. So, um, you know, a a comparator like Peter Kennard, for example, who did a lot of work with CND and sort of shared a pacifist outlook was kind of quite well-known and punk graphic artists like um, Linda Sterling and Jamie Reid had quite a high profile. And um, the whole sort of collective that she was part of as well, um, that were throughout the 1970s sort of radical performance art collectives, like exit that she was involved in and the free festivals movement, all these different places where she'd really made a mark. And um, really she wasn't part of that historicization process. So I got in touch with G and um, she uh, did some interviews for my MA dissertation. And I sort of introduced to various sort of academics who I found out there were lots of other people, academics and practitioners who sort of agreed that, um, you know, a study on her work was kind of warranted, and then um, I managed to get the funding to do a proper in-depth survey of her work—a PhD at London College of Communication with um, Russ Bestley—and um, from there, I got the commission from Manchester University Press to um, to write up the research to write the book, which is the first art monograph on her work.
0: And you go through her kind of whole life starting um, thinking about the sort of beginning in her art school years. So can you talk a little bit about what you saw sort of going on in British arts and politics during that time she was in art school, kind of what she was influenced about in those early years for her?
2: Yeah, um, so G got into um, art school um, in 1961. She went to the South East Essex School of Art and um, she was just 15 and she got in on the strength of her portfolio. She was from a working class background, she grew up in Dagenham, and um, the fact that she got into art school was, um, you know, opened up completely new sort of horizons and um, it was a time that's quite well known for there being a lot of such social mobility and um, higher education was being sort of democratised and people from different social classes were, um, you know, gaining access into higher education institutes and particularly art schools where a lot of people to emerge from the art schools in the 1960s sort of um, went on to play a role in the counterculture, so she was... um, you know, quite sort of symptomatic of that um, particular sort of um, path, I guess, um, among her contemporaries. And um, so there was, you know, a lot of change going on. I mean, it was before, you know, sort of 1968 and all the student rebellions and so on. It was 1961 to 65. And um, so despite you know, higher education being democratised and despite these sort of changes going on in the world of arts and culture, she kind of does remember it being run along very traditional lines. So she says she had a very, she really appreciates the fact she had like, you know, quite a rigorous sort of education run along traditional lines. And that um, she also found that social... Sort of hierarchies were still very much in place, despite the fact that things were starting to change in that respect. But um, when she was at art school, she uh, met Penny Rambo, who set up Dial House, which is like a kind of, um, was run along as, a, as an open house um, in, in Essex, where they've had like a high turnover of artists and musicians and um, people involved in ecology projects and so on over the decades and um they were sort of brought together by their shared love of pop art and um they were also both kind of very kind of quite, quite sort of naughty people by their innate disobedience um so I think they kind of got up to a lot of pranks and so on at art school despite her also being um sort of very self-disciplined and hard-working as well um they were kind of brought together by um their shared kind of um yeah rebellion i guess yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) well you you mentioned dial house and so another thing so you know art school but she was also really um and, and they have had a long history together of collaborating together. And so you also talk about her participation in these art collectives, these um, free festivals, um, the start of Stonehenge Festival. Um, so can you talk a little bit about her role in these sort of collectives in the festival movement?
2: Yeah. So in the late 60s after art school, while Penny and some friends of his had moved into Dalhouse. She lived at a village in Essex nearby um, called Stamford Rivers, and she was part of the Stamford Rivers Quartet. And basically they kind of um, wrote musical scores with imagery and colour, and then um, the idea was that it was open and accessible, so people, whatever their level of musical training was, they could um, interpret the music however they like from this imagery. And... um, then when she moved into Dal House, alongside um, working as a commercial illustrator for children's books, she was involved in sort of performance art groups like um, Exit, for example. She set up with Penny, and that had like up to 20 people at any time. And um, they collaborated with members of Fluxus, and they um, together they put on um, a performance at... Um, ISIS-72, which is the International Carnival of Experimental Sound. And um, they were also involved in starting up Stonehenge Free Festival with their friend Wally Hope, who is his kind of tragic... Um, circum what ended his life very tragically, which is covered in the book. And um, they sort of helped with that and were sort of involved with the Free Festivals movement as well. Um, Dial House kind of provided a base where um, people could sort of come by and plan for things like that, like basically, you know, holding the first three festivals. G was involved in designing the flyers and so on. So
0: one of the things too is, so she's involved there, but she decides to go to New York and you talk a little bit about that um, move to New York for a while, um, what she sort of learned as an artist there and that connection also to the underground press. And so could you talk a little bit about that choice to move to New York and what was happening at that time for her artistically?
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, she although she was involved in these sort of performance art collectives and the free festivals movement, um, you know, the, the way she was kind of earning her living was as a commercial um, illustrator for children's books. And she became kind of very frustrated and bored, really, um, with the fact that, you know, this was just responding to a brief quite passively and um, that, that she couldn't really... Um, always say what she, she wanted to say. know, I think that was something she wanted to sort of develop her own kind of voice, in a sense. So in the late 1970s, she um, moved to New York and she kind of found that um, despite the city being, you know, quite run down financially, she found it a really exciting and supportive environment. Um, she was invited in to talk to... You know, the editors on um, top magazines, New York Times, um, Ebony Rolling Stone and so on. And um, she could sort of sit down and show them her portfolio and have a conversation. And they basically agreed for her to produce her illustrations for the magazine on a freelance basis. Um, you know, she could basically sort of express herself personally, politically, more or less how she liked she refused to do roughs she um, you know she wasn't going to get involved in a protracted negotiation process um, so her illustrations that kind of accompanied book reviews record reviews articles, and so on um she, she she more or less just kind of produced them and submitted them and when there was a problem in the end with some of the content, that was the point that she left um her career as a successful freelance illustrator and moved back to the uk to be part of the anarcho punk bands and collective crafts but until that time her design language really sort of came on and um you can see a quite satirical sort of humor in her work and um sort of quite close observations of um everyday life as well um in her work that was accompanying articles on things like um that were happening at that time, like breakup of the family and, um, you know, things that were in the public eye, celebrity culture, um, Watergate, political subjects like Watergate, the mafia, um, all sorts of things really.
0: And one thing, um, I'll mention, and you might want to talk about it too, is that your book is, has a number of illustrations as well as colored plates so that there are examples throughout of her work throughout her sort of career and you can really see her work um, it, her, as a collage artist right but also her work as a painter and through her line drawing and there's pieces um in there that like and I think you talk about this idea that they look like they were photoshopped they their photographs but they're actually her drawing so um you have images throughout the text throughout the book as well
2: yeah, 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 no, that, that's right. I was very, um, you know, it's, it's been amazing to be able to sort of, she, um, you know, was happy to share her personal archive of work, so as well as all the re- all the work that's been reproduced um, as crass record releases or in her um, self-produced publication, um, International Anthem. Later on, she did music graphics for various other sort of, Bands as well, um, but you know, but I, I've managed to to be able to sort of access an original archive of her work, so um, that that's all kind of in there. And Manchester University Press were really, you know, generous in allowing me to um, include quite quite a high number of colour illustrations
0: as well in the central section as the plates. Yeah. So, so, she comes back to the UK and and you talk and and we get to the point where she is working and part of crass and there's this birth of anarcho-punk and this and she's really getting this punk aesthetic um and using that so could you talk a bit about that this sort of crucial point that what you see is that punk aesthetic and how this comes into this birth this real birth of anarcho-punk um and crass yeah
2: i mean i guess you know it's important to say that um crass had what can kind of loosely be described as um, a philosophy, you know, so um, it's very distinct from first wave punk in the UK. Um, And, I mean, you can sort of loosely say that with the release of their first album, Feeding of the 5000, that a lot of the content in the music and accompanying illustrations and artwork sort of combines... Like I said, loosely speaking, anarchist ideas with pacifist ideas, and um, you know, this is really kind of quite a new direction for punk. You can see with the Sex Pistols, one of the criticisms that Crass made of Sex Pistols was that it was, um, basically anarchy as posturing and using kind of situationist inspired shock tactics, and that, uh, um, what Crass what were known for was basically their version of anarchism came out more from a sort of lived experience rather than anarchist theory. So, you know, this goes right back to the counterculture, the 1970s, with Darl House being run as an open house and, um, you know, creating networks with other people and living quite autonomously. So um, this is really sort of quite a new direction within punk, it comes in um, within a wider sort of bracket of post-punk, I guess, which sort of had lots of different aspects to it. And, um, you know, in in turn, then, that kind of had quite an influence in in the States, with hardcore in the States, um, bands like Dead Kennedys and um, Black Flag and so on. So um, it's kind of like an ongoing process, I guess. And the, the DIY aspect is very strong. Um, within that whole kind of area. So, um, you know, DIY kind of ethic that you can see in the counterculture becomes sort of very pronounced with CRASS, with um, their independent record label, with the fact that they helped so many other um, anarcho-punk bands to set up their own independent record labels. And with the fanzines, you know, they, they did hundreds of interviews for fanzines, but they, re- they refused to talk to the um, music press, for example because they were wary of being misrepresented and having their ideas misrepresented. So that sort of DIY um, ethos is kind of, um, you know, very very strong. And it also forms a reaction against what was seen as the commercialization of first-wave punk in around 1978, basically.
0: Right. And so Crass goes on and then it... um mid 1980s Kress disbands and um, so but she continues to sort of do work Um, there's times where she's not so what happens after um, that after Kress what is she doing what are you seeing with her art and what's happening there
2: yeah so after Kress um, disbanded in 1984 um, you know the members were all kind of really exhausted because it had been a really really intense um few years both in terms of their output in terms of being touring and and churning out records in terms of the sort of political pressures of that time um and they they were sort of feeling quite burnt out and G G was as well and she you know had a period of time where there was a more sort of introspective period. And this sort of coincided with her mother being chronically ill. So she was looking after her mum. And then um, her, her mum died. And into the 90s, G um, basically started to really kind of move away from the crass years um, in her work in, in all sorts of ways. Like up until the end of crass, her work had been overwhelmingly illustration and she started to sort of really experiment with new forms formats sizes you know her rather than doing these kind of meticulously painted tiny illustrations using these little fine brushes she could kind of really loosen up and um, sometimes involve her body a lot more you know or at least her kind of arm with doing sort of paintings and pastel drawings and um building sculptures installations and so on as, as the time progressed and um She also was able to move away from the more sort of direct messaging that was associated with crass, that was um, more overtly political. She was able to um, experiment with a far wider range of themes, including some really quite personal um, ideas that were very, very personal to her. And, um, yeah, her work sort of became a lot more varied a lot more i mean there was there was more subtle messaging going on in the crass years anyway but really after crass you can see um it's taking quite a wider um form of communication if you like not such direct messaging
1: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe
0: And one of the things you mentioned at the beginning of the interview is that she um, there were other artists, other sort of collage artists, other punk artists who were getting a lot more recognition than she was. Um, But now she seems to be um, there seems to be a sort of push or to getting her, you've written this book, right, but other getting her having um, shows and and getting her work out there and getting people to realize um, her influence over the past 40, 50 years, right? So could you talk a little bit about that, like what's going on now, what you see happening with her work? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's important to say that for a long time, whether her work wasn't... um, you know given critical attention acknowledged in a mainstream level well how much of that is to do with her avoiding um this and how much of it you know it's it's kind of quite hard to say because it was a whole part of their ethos as crass was to remain anonymous each the contribution of each member of crass um they just produced collectively as crass they didn't say who did the illustrations or the production or uh, you know the the main share of the songwriting or anything like that until quite a lot later um and actually for quite a long time people assumed that the artwork that crass produced was created by a man and um so that was you know that that was something that really um that, that was another reason why i thought it was important for to be acknowledged, really, um, because of those kinds of assumptions, and um, yeah, so for for quite a long time, it was just the what Crass did as a collective, and um, really, since the sort of around since around two thousand, her work has been she's been exhibiting a lot more widely. And then with this sort of historicisation process that was happening from around 2010, really, where um, punk and post-punk were being historicised and a lot of the political protest of those decades. Um, I mean, I guess it's really post... In the 1990s, the art world was quite focused on sensationalist art. So it's really kind of after that where more political art... um, starts to kind of, you know, the sort of art institutions are paying more attention to this kind of work, really, and collaborative art and so on. So um, her work is included in, you know, some sort of coffee table um, books on this kind of subject and also major sort of exhibitions on punk art and graphics. And, um, yeah, she's exhibiting a lot more... Widely. And then in 2016, when I was sort of in the middle of doing the PhD, there was a major retrospective that was actually called an introspective of her work that was held at First Sight in Colchester. And that really sort of brought to the public's kind of attention just the enormous variety in work that she has produced over sort of five decades. Um, so for people who just knew her work with Crass, it was quite you know, quite an eye-opener in that respect. But she has also toured and exhibited um, quite widely in smaller shows and group shows and things like that as well. And she's had quite a close relationship with um, some of the sort of galleries that she feels kind of ethically aligned with. So there's like the Hooray Gallery in New York and um, the Horse Hospital in London and places like that that she kind of um, feels quite, you know, in sync with um in terms of where they're coming from
0: and she's working with her niece correct and her niece is so, like so she's very much in control of who is showing her art how her art is kind of displayed and and making it accessible to to um to a larger audience
2: exactly yeah i mean um you know i there's there's been interest shown for example from you know University of Cambridge, from various other um, quite you know major sort of art institutions in terms of collecting her work, and um, she doesn't have anything against selling her work to public institutions as such. But she's kind of so far hasn't actually gone, gone as far as parting with any of her work. Um, she she kind of on principle doesn't want to sell to private collectors because it very much goes against her um principles. Um but yeah, she has nothing in principle against selling to public institutions, but so far it hasn't happened. But yeah, she does she does keep everything quite um you know, she tends to work with people and institutions that she feels that she has some sort of affinity with. Yeah.
0: So I'll ask you two sort of final questions and one is about G and her work, and and where you write um, as a biographer, as someone who is looking at her work, um, how where do you see her place, or how do you see her kind of maybe legacy, if that's the right word, um, in the art world and, and the importance of what she's done, and and how that sort of impacted and influenced artists, maybe now even. Yeah. I mean,
2: I think there's a few areas where she's had a really sort of decisive impact. And I think, um, you know, if you look at radical art collectors in the 1970s, for example, you know, an obvious comparison is with um, Coombe Transmissions, um, although the, the, they didn't, um, they, they, they weren't friends, they didn't have, you know, a kind of relationship at that time. Um, the book actually covers what she thought of... Um, their work I don't think she was very sort of impressed with, I don't think she really felt that she had an affinity with what they were doing at all um, and yeah I mean there's also the cultural aspect to what she was doing so connected with the counterculture with um, the free festivals movement um, then there's her impact in terms of punk and post-punk graphics, music graphics And, um, you know, since the 2000s, her work's kind of emerged with different kind of new relevance for, um, you know, in street art and protest art. Obviously, there's the connection with Banksy, who she's worked with, and um, she's taken part in a lot of the collaborative projects that he's organised. And um, there's all those those kinds of areas, but... um, there's also, you know, if you look at what she's doing in the 90s, really, she is just, it's just a different narrative to what was going on at that time to the sort of dominant um, one, which was quite sensationalist, really, that dominated the art world. But she's still commenting on um, what, what's happening socially, culturally. Um, so, I mean, there's there's an awful lot really there in terms of her legacy, where exactly she will sit in terms of art history is kind of um the jury sort of out on that really because um you know it it really depends what happens to her work going forward now and um you know who's going to hold it who's going to care for it how will it be archived and and the importance of dar house in all of that as well as this center for um you know radical kind of collect collectivity, I guess.
0: So my final question. Um you've worked on this project, do you have this book out? Um is there anything sort of you want to promote that either something new you're working on or something with this book that you want people to know about? So any last words of things you want us to know about?
2: Um <laughs> I can't I can't think of anything
0: off the top
2: of my head. No. <laughs> I mean <laughs> Yeah no it's just 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 the book really i mean i think you know the book kind of crosses over from it was originally written as a for academic um audiences but it's not really it crosses over into um wider audiences it's quite sort of accessible really so um i guess that's the only other thing to say about it really
0: yeah, no. And I will agree. It's a great, you know, the illustrations, it really covers everything, you know, her life in depth and detail and her art and really goes through that. And yes, in a very accessible way um, for people who are interested in art, in music, right, in collage and illustration, all of that. So, yes, I think I agree. Um. Becky, thanks again for talking with me. Rebecca Bins, who's the author of G Voucher, Beyond Punk, Feminism, and the Avant-Garde. Thanks for talking with me for New Books Network. No worries. Thank you so much. Thank you. See you
2: later.